Hello, everyone. My name is Wes Bush. And today I have my favorite co-host, Ramley. And today we are with May, who is the co-founder of Cordoba. And so before we dive into any episode, one thing we love to do is just learn more about the founder and why they decided to even create this business in the first place. So May, could you just tell us a little bit more about why you decided to found Cordoba? Yeah. So I was on the other side of the table for the first part of my career, investing in tech companies, uh, first as a junior analyst, a big investment bank, and then a associate and then a VP at a sovereign wealth fund. And I definitely always felt like it was the entrepreneurs who were doing the hardest work and I'm a masochist, so of course I wanted to do the hardest work too. And jumped, you know, both feet in, moved to San Francisco in 2015 and have been working on Cordoba ever since. I am a college journalist and spent summers interning at newspapers. The problem we solve is definitely one that I've had firsthand, needing to make, you know, by hand, painstaking corrections and improvements to content. And, you know, in the business world, you know, it's more than just grammar and spelling and good style. All those things are elemental and writing skills are a lot less prevalent than they were before too, by the way. Thank you, social media and our iPhones. But, you know, in addition to just the elements of good writing, most of us who work at companies have got a whole bunch of other things we have to adhere to. Terminology, brand voice, a certain set of guidelines and rules around messaging. And that is just really hard to keep straight. And so what we found is, you know, the vast majority of companies of any scale have got brand guidelines, style guides written down somewhere, but it's this kind of dusty PDF, a one and done kind of thing that people just don't reference anymore. And if you've got like content Nazis on your team who are (laughs) incredibly diligent about the details, then, you know, they may be running workshops and, you know, tone of voice training, but vast majority of us don't have that. So the solution is a little Chrome extension that helpfully lets you know when you are off style, off terminology, off brand, and certainly, you know, the kind of table stakes things of of good spelling, good mechanics, good grammar that help us all write professionally and with great impact at work. Yeah. And I can totally relate to the problem too. I remember when I started in demand gen at a B2B SaaS startup and like I was writing the first few emails for newsletters and it was just like, I send it to the content marketer on the team. <laughs> I remember just getting it back with Google Docs, like red everywhere. I'm like, where is my text at the end of the day? Yeah, Just because <laughs> it wasn't really with the voice and like had the right words and everything else. So it is so important for so many teams to just make sure that there is that consistency because we all come to writing in usually our own language. It's very rare for us to think like, I want to sound like John F. Kennedy. No, like you're going to start with how you say stuff and then work backwards. So I I can totally relate to the problem. And so one of the things that really caught our attention is you recently wrote a blog post on how Corva launched a successful free trial. So before we really dive into that, I want to take a step back and just ask why? Like what was going wrong with the business or what were some of the, the inner workings of your initial go-to-market strategy? Like what did that look like for how you traditionally made sales? And then why did you decide 
you know, it was the time to shift things up and try a free trial. Yeah. So much about the entrepreneurial journey is about these like emerging strategies that become dogma and you're not really sure why. And Cordoba came out of a pivot. And, you know, in the previous business, outbound sales worked really well. It was an established category. We sent cold emails to people asking if they had this problem. If they had it, we did a demo and done. And the the customers were Fortune 500 companies, and these were six-figure ACVs, et cetera. This product and this problem is is an end user's problem. And so our initial go-to-market and adopted what we knew and what was kind of our DNA and had worked before. And it's like, But it was, you know, if we can sell $100,000 deal, right, that's much easier than going out and getting, you know, a thousand customers. And so the way that we were trying to sell the product really mirrored what we were doing before. And we'd get people through to the funnel. And then, of course, naturally, given what our product does, right, correct people's writing, people were asking for sandbox environments and, and trials. And so, you know, one thing I really love about your practice, the product-led growth initiative, is this idea that ripping off the Band-Aid and just being completely transparent to people forces everybody to up their game. And, you know, when you don't have a way for somebody to really get into the product and see for themselves, like you've got to be hiding something by definition, like you literally are. And so for us, it was like, we've got nothing to hide. We love our product. Product fucking works. And I don't want to be asked by sales to set up another damn sandbox environment. So we need a free trial. And, you know, that was really the tip of the iceberg because when your market needs a free trial, it's an indicator that there are so many other attributes of the way the market wants to buy your product. And so that necessitated, obviously, self-onboarding. It necessitated for us having published pricing, having pricing that was very transparent in terms of how it was going to scale when somebody you know introduced it into a company. Because the last thing a marketer wants is to introduce a product that now that there are a thousand users is like costing the company a million bucks a year. So there's a lot that needs to be thought out in a lot of ways. Coming to the strategic conclusion that you need a free trial, it is kind of the first wake-up call of just needing to do business in a fundamentally different way. And so on that journey, you mentioned a bunch of things such as the whole process of creating that self-onboarding experience. That was a big part. Pricing, changing that up, also understanding like what is the the cost of some of these users going to be. So what really prompted the change? You saw like there was this old way you were doing it where you decided, okay, let's go after these big fish or whales, whatever you want to call them for customers. And then you had this revelation that said, you know, this isn't the way we necessarily want to do it. Let's, let's approach it differently. So where was that fork in the road for you? Mm-hmm. The fork in the road probably came once we had our first handful of truly transactional sales, where we dropped the price low enough in kind of the five-figure territory for somebody to pull the trigger in eight days. And it was revelatory. And that happened, you know, pre-free trial. And, you know, at the time we were looking at, yes, six-figure deals, but sales cycles of five, six, seven, eight months in some cases. And great, you know, at the end of eight months, you've got, you know, fill in Fortune 10 company name here. And we were very proud of ourselves. But in the early 
stages when customer feedback, product feedback, going word of mouth is everything. It's actually worth more to you to just have more people through the door and more revenue through the door, especially if you're venture backed. And so it was really that first taste of a truly transactional sale that was, you know, okay, how do we actually make this the status quo? How does this become our normal way of doing things versus, you know, a one-off because somebody really found this incredible like value need match. Once you figure out that moment that you needed to make that switch, what were like the first steps that you tried to do first to make sure that this is viable? Yeah. So getting engineering and product on board were huge. Uh, my co-founder is a very savvy business mind too. I mean, he, he's our CTO and head of product, but thinks very commercially, right? So there isn't this kind of classic split. And so, you know, he saw it the second I saw it, maybe even before. And so, you know, before going to the sales team and the marketing team, you need to really make sure that you can deliver a product that is you know, has all of, and these are huge, like months long types of initiatives, right? Being able to turn all your functionality into modules that can be, you know, turned on or off depending on what tier you're on and where that whole approach can actually be changed. I mean, and not, you know, take a bunch of rework. There's just so much engineering that goes into being able to be strategic and agile about this at the same time and flexible. So having him on board immediately was huge. Being able to scope out very quickly how long this would take and kind of what the phases would look like. And then, you know, at our next leadership meeting, um, and, you know, we have a head of sales who's an experienced head of sales and, you know, has been around the block. Of course, it's all of your standard cannibalization types of conversations. And, you know, from a marketing leadership perspective, we had somebody on the team who is an ABM expert because that's what we were doing. And so, you know, that was also a whole set of conversations about leaders no longer with the company. I mean, these are some pretty fundamentally different approaches. And, you know, you as a founder could be pretty nimble and say, all right, we're just doing something else. But uh, it's a completely other ball game to get everybody around the table to get on the bus because, you know, it could, A, they could disagree with the decision strategically that it's not the best way to foster revenue. And, you know, that was the case with that particular person. And uh, it could also be that, you know, they're scared. People are anxious. And so there's, if you are not a team of five people, there's a lot to consider in, in changing courses drastically as we did. So as the leader of the business, how did you get everyone on that product-led bus? Yeah, really good question. Uh, repetition, repetition, repetition. And we are continuing to get people on the product-led bus. The good news is the product team loves being on the product-led bus. And you know, even today, we are, you know, of our 28 people, we're majority product people between our engineers, our data scientists, our designer, and our, our head of product. And so, you know, you've got kind of a slight edge in terms of numbers, but certainly the go-to-market folks are very influential. I mean, they write and speak for a living, right? So they will be vocal if they don't agree with you or think this strategy is, is not very well thought out. In a lot of ways, COVID has accelerated this reality. And I think it has become increasingly clear to people that the old way of selling software is dead forever. I don't think we will do be flying to sell six and seven figure deals anymore. Look, maybe Salesforce will continue to do that. But companies like ours, where it's kind of like a hub and spoke kind of like 
adoption model, right? Like, yes, there's an admin who wants a dashboard and gets reporting, but you live and die as a product by the success of, of your end user interaction and your end user utility. You are not going to be selling software in a relationship-based way. The strongest relationship is going to be that person and that company with their customer success manager. But from a sales perspective, they have to be in the product. They have to get value and get a lot of value by the time they're taking up the chain to try to get somebody to pay for it. And so the realities of the past six weeks has definitely made all of us so thankful that we've got a free trial, that we've got the tools to be able to say, if you're government, you can use our product free for six months, which is you know what we're doing with local and state government who are putting out so much crisis communication on a daily basis now and are finding a lot of utility in our tool to kind of really speak plainly to people and not get any emotional tone wrong. So without a free trial, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have discount codes, right? There'd be no way to actually build these funnels and get people getting value out of the product. So it is tough to get everybody on the product led bus, no doubt. And repeating the strategy and just the realities of how the market have changed have definitely made those things easier. For sure. And so one of the things we, whenever we're asking founders, like, how did you make the shift from sales led to product led? We always like to ask them about this one's apartments because it's always an interesting response. And so this is what happens to your sales? And like, how has your whole approach to selling changed? Yeah. So the sales motion has definitely changed. Now in the first discovery call, and by the way, there are lots of opportunities for people to put their hands up and talk to sales. Sometimes I literally just saw an email now to our hello at Cordoba. I mean, you can't request a demo on our website. Like that's how you know, militant it is. And so some people are like, uh, hello, I've been like trying to get a demo forever. And so that's nice, right? Like at least you know then that somebody is really, and by forever, it's been like, you know, 36 hours and it's a Monday morning. So, you know, I would not be as happy with that if it was Wednesday. But, you know, all to say that the sales motion has definitely changed. Now in that first conversation, somebody does want to talk to sales, either it's because they saw an enterprise feature in the self-service product. And by the way, we don't just have a free trial. We also have free trial into self-service if one so chooses with some of the functionality uh, locked away for an upgrade that requires talking to sales. And when somebody does put their hand up, either because they're in the product or they've been through our marketing, one of the first things that they're asked is um, whether they've signed up for a free trial. And obviously we ask them what we actually know the answer, but it's really so that they can be sure that like we want them to be in a trial. And so from a sales motion perspective, there tends to be now kind of a second discovery call when somebody is in the product. And so in addition to the demo with kind of a large team and they're taken through the enterprise product, um, with just the champion specifically, it's sort of a helpful, hey, let me help you, you know, set up your free trial and just make sure that you're seeing what we need you to see to figure out if this is the right product for you. And then the team-based sale has not changed, right? Because, I mean, it's not like a lot of companies feel like they're giving their market something by having a free trial. Like it's work to explore free trials. Like we are busy people. We could literally all be checking out software all day. Um, And even when somebody does sign up for a free trial, I mean, like it's a three-minute experience, right? Start to finish. And if they're trying to adopt your product for our team, then, you know, it's largely happening outside of your actual product. That really could be the case depending on how the company buys software. So a salesperson is absolutely still critical in getting a large sale through 
in spite of a free trial. And so that became pretty clear in our business. And so salespeople, you know, God forbid, I, I made sure that they didn't feel like they were going to be worthless, but they saw it very quickly. And then they also saw how the free trial accelerated, right? And that's kind of the big bet you're making as a leader is the free trial is going to accelerate our business. It's going to accelerate the deals. It's going to allow everybody to get real, real quick. And if it is real, it's going to allow your champion to make the case internally. And that's helped us at Amazon and at Walmart and like, you know, name other Fortune 50 company here. So much of how people are buying software has changed that now, you know, I'm not surprised when I see JP Morgan has signed up for a trial. And it's so much more about the person and the organization and the team than like, you know, the domain, because the cultures could be a pretty modern and pretty with it kind of buying culture. I want to talk a little bit about that. Like when does sales team like step in? Like if you see somebody like JP Morgan and sign up, do you get the sales team to pounce on that because that's like a high value or you kind of wait and see them interact with the tool first before you do a, like a soft read? Yeah, good question, Romley. I like your concept of, you know, the product-led growth metrics, right? Like what is that magic engagement level at which it's clear somebody is getting some value out of the product and isn't going to be, you know, slightly peeved that you ping them 30 seconds after they signed up for your product. So we definitely have some safeguards in place around that. So everybody sees when people are signing up, we actually had a customer come through because we signed up for their product. So I thought that might be like a cute little growth hack strategy, just go out and like sign up for a bunch of free trials. So we're definitely Googling companies all the time and you know trying to find out who's interested in this and why. Because you know, you're, you're still trying to also figure out messaging and positioning, right? Like who signs up for a trial gives you so much information independent of whether they become a customer or not. So we all are certainly interacting with that information. Sales doesn't reach out unless some qualification is met. If it is, you know, ideal customer, the right persona, and they have interacted with the products. Of course, we, we have a whole email sequence, right, relating to, we use app cues and there's kind of a whole set of communication that's triggered. So you are layering in yet another level of communication. So it actually has to be really good. And so if there's a significant amount of product engagement, and we define that by, uh, we've got a feature set called style guides. That's where you put in your writing style, your guidelines, your terminology. And so if you've spent some time on that, and or if you've created documents, if you've installed our plugins, and or if you've invited folks on your team, and you know we haven't, it's not like Marketo or Amplitude or you know something is spitting out a score. We're just watching a feed of activity on a particular account. If you've done those things, then you could hear from our sales, sometimes me, if it is a very strategic person at a very strategic company saying, hi, introduction, thank you for signing up for our product. Let me know if you have any questions. Really happy to help you see how company X or persona Y or something relevant to them is finding a lot of value out of the product. Um, and we probably get responses you know, a third of the time because somebody could be kicking the tires for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with them actually wanting <laughs> to use your product. Now, what we are trying to do are a couple of things because obviously given Corona, given that we're all working from our homes, given all the craziness and anxiety people are living with, the bar has really gone up for when somebody will take a tool to 
someone else on their team. And so what we're trying to do is from a good, yet at the same time, the number of people signing up for our product hasn't really changed, which is great with less spend. So that's great too. And we've got a product that helps when you are remote and eases collaboration, which is great. But what we're trying to do now is in addition to the free trial, if you've installed the extensions, can you actually continue to interact with our suggestions up to a usage level? So one of the things I wrote about in the blog post was the difference between usage-based and, and time-based. And so now we're basically going to come up with a hybrid free trial where on the extension side, you can continue to interact with a subset of our suggestions up to a pretty high usage, actually, even without being a paid customer. And then in addition to our starter plan, which is the self-service plan, we're going to come out with a individual free forever plan. So those are two things that have come out of, you know, the last few weeks of insanity. And, you know, all of us still wanting to continue to move our product and our team and our companies forward, even when most companies have put a pause on spending. Interesting. Okay. So the whole part of that decision around whether it's time-based free trial, usage-based free trial is so hard for a lot of founders because you're like, well, of course I want to give people the premium experience, give them everything for like a limited amount of time. And then there's the other people who are like, well... Like, what amount of time does someone actually need to see value here? If it's a longer time to value, maybe usage base is an interesting option. So, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts around why did you end up going down this path of usage based free trial? So, today, just to be clear, we are time based. We are soon going to be usage based. And <laughs> I, I hear you. I, I do think usage based is a further bridge. And so, most founders will start with the time base, but things have changed. I mean, we ask a survey when somebody doesn't continue and about a third of respondents have told us thus far that they didn't have enough time in a two-week trial, which is crazy, you know, where they're getting communication. We think it's crazy, but, you know, certainly for them, I believe they're telling the truth when they say that. And I think what they're really trying to say is, you know, they didn't get enough value in those two weeks. And so, you know, are you right about the amount of value you need to be delivering to get somebody to commit? Are you wrong on the high side? Are you wrong on the low side? And then how long will it actually take for you to deliver that value? What's great about time-based is if you've got a big sales team and you've got champions who respond to email then that is absolutely the right way to go. If for whatever reason that's not happening, and the reason could be a global pandemic apocalypse, then you need to be usage-based because people are going to be doing this at their own pace and trying to get and realize the value that you're trying to provide at their own pace. And, and for us, it's about the number of suggestions that have been accepted where somebody says, oh, I didn't realize that could actually be kind of offensive let me change that. Or hmm, yeah, I could actually see how that's actually kind of biased. Okay. Yeah. That's totally ableist. Oh my goodness. So, you know, a bunch of those string together and it's like, wow, Cordoba's added a lot of value. I would love for that to happen within a 10 day period, but for all sorts of reasons, it may not. So I do think letting people discover and receive that kind of bucket of value at their own pace is the right way to go. For sure. And so 
I was having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with another founder of ClickFlows. And so they're they're going through a similar process right now, which is deciding, hey, like, should we do this kind of free trial, usage-based, what might work best? And one of the things that keeps coming up with anyone who's on like the CTO side or anyone with a technical background is what they're thinking about is what's the cost of this user? Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts around how does that really come into the equation of making this decision? Because obviously, like if you give 100% of your product away for everyone for a certain amount of time, like you could have those power users that just eat up like your servers and it could be a very expensive user. And then if you just like cap it, like, okay, you can use X number of widgets kind of thing, at least you can protect your downsides. So I'm curious to hear how you really thought about the cost of a free user yep. at the end of the day. Yeah, really good. So we went through and kind of service by service estimated, basically, if we spent $15,000 a month on this microservice, essential and, you know, move the needle on the product cost and product experience. What would that mean? You know, what kind of throughput is that? How many, you know, concurrent users is that? How many total? And those numbers are pretty fucking big. It's like, I would be very happy to pay 3x that if that's what it meant. And so we kind of did it backwards. And, you know, everything else is pretty small potatoes, right? So if you kind of cost out your main big services. The thing for us that proved to be pretty expensive is reporting. And so, you know, if you are on a low tier, it's just not as real time. Now it's not like a refresh button. So it's not that, but it's like, we're, you know, and we don't even have a knowledge base article about it. You're going to experience some delay for most people will be pretty imperceptible and we're not going to include reporting in our free forever tier. And, you know, we found that in our legacy business too, that it's actually reporting that is the most expensive service. And so you're just going to want to make sure that if you are including it, the stuff that really costs a lot of money making it available instantly is uh, turned off for your lower tiers or your free tiers. Awesome. And so now that you have made the transition, obviously there's still a lot more work for any company who is making that shift to become even more product-led as a full team. But what are the benefits you're noticing so far? I know you've already mentioned a couple, which you wrote down, like the sales cycles are a lot shorter. That was one of the big things that really made you decide like, hey, this is uh, the fork in the road. This is really cool. We want to see more of this deal flow. If you get more people signing up after eight days, kudos to them and let's help them quicker. So what are those other benefits you're noticing on your end? Yeah, it certainly has opened up the SMB and prosumer market in ways that I wasn't anticipating. And being able to serve those folks with the same product has been awesome. I mean, we actually get a lot of students, a lot of academics. And so it has definitely opened up new streams for us that we didn't think would be possible. Now, in some ways, it could be distracting, right? If you don't have a real clear-cut vision for how those segments fit into the overall plan, because it could be relatively straightforward um, for somebody to shift into that and then not be able to kind of go up market again or vice versa. So, you know, for us, that's definitely meant a lot of conversations around the relative merits of various segments that are self-selecting into the product, which I think is a good thing. It, It definitely 
forces us to have conversations that lead to greater clarity. I'm curious for the companies that are making that switch from sales-led to product-led, what would be your one tip now that you've probably further along than a lot of companies who are making the switch? What would be that one tip you'd have for that company and founders? If you are a 10K ACV or higher type of product, I would say my biggest advice is be prepared to live the hybrid life that you may find somebody who ends up being a $25,000 a year customer needing very little help and somebody who ends up being an $8,000 a year customer needing quite a bit more help from the sales team and not to not to over-engineer those interactions. Just get people up on the product, get it operating on the team and then get out, get out of their way. And it'll all blend out at the end of the year I was listening to the CMO of Asana on a recent podcast uh, who said, and this is a public company, 50% of their pipeline is still word of mouth, which is absolutely insane and so cool. And so, you know, the more people that you can get to have a positive experience with your product, the more good that you are doing for your pipeline. And we're all so early in our journeys relative to the markets that we're trying to tackle. You know, my biggest advice would be go product led and be okay. The product led doesn't mean no sales. It just means literally lead with the product, then sales. It's just about order of operations. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to really share your journey. Because I know a lot of people are listening to this. They are in the midst of right now transitioning from sales led to product led. And a lot of that can be due to this global pandemic we're going through. They're just realizing that this is a much more powerful way to sell in this current environment. And so I really do appreciate you just sharing some of your wisdom here and learnings from this whole process. And so for anyone that wants to learn more about you and what you're up to, where can they go? Yeah, I love talking to people. I had a great conversation this weekend with an entrepreneur from Sweden. And so I love talking to other entrepreneurs. I'm may at cordoba.com and drop me a line. would love to share more about what we've gone through and are going through. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, May. Thank you, Wes. Thank you, Ramley. 